I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. Ludwig Zamenhof was born in 1859 in a small city in Poland. His family was Jewish, and the area he grew up in also had factions of Germans, Russians, and Poles, all of whom mutually distrusted one another. During his childhood, Zamenhof developed a theory. These groups would never get along without a common, neutral language to communicate with people in the other groups. Zamenhof considered the possibility of using existing languages for this purpose, such as Latin and Greek, but decided that the cost to learn them was too high, so he invented his own. Esperanto, as Zamenhof's language came to be known, sought to take the familiar Indo-European root words and cast them in a language without verb conjugations, cases, gender, or any of the elements which make a language like German or Russian so difficult to learn. He was 19 when he first unveiled the language for the public. Zamenhof's goal was not just to create a language that was easy to learn, but to create a language that would put the different peoples of Europe on a footing of mutual disadvantage, and therefore he hoped equality. As far as invented languages go, Esperanto has enjoyed more success than most. You can study it on Duolingo. It is a staple of popular culture. For example, I recently saw in an episode of the TV show Billions, where it is being learned by Michael Wagner. But mostly, this success has been on the linguistic front. People find the language interesting, but they don't really see it as especially useful as a basis for utopia. In a way, Zamenhof's Esperanto is a microcosm of the system of values more generally known as humanism. There are many shades of humanism, but at their core lies a belief that understanding, connection, and even mutual admiration among different kinds of people is not only possible, but paramount to a meaningful life. If we could all converse with one another, understand one another, then maybe we'd stand a chance of constructing the kind of society we all want to live in. But while Esperanto embodies the aspirations of humanism, it also is emblematic of its tensions. In theory, getting people to celebrate the many ways of being human is an ideal worth striving for. In practice, it's a difficult one to achieve. When it comes to the ways of being human, what all humans have in common is that they prefer their own. The fundamental impulse of humanism is to grapple with this tension, and it is the subject of the latest book by author Sarah Bakewell. In it, she surveys 700 years of humanist thought, with each thinker bringing a personal perspective to the shared problem of what it means to value human life and society in an abstract sense. The experience of reading Bakewell's book is to hear the echoing conversation of the ages. One of the ways of reading humanism in general is to see it as a means of participating in this conversation. It is a notion I think is particularly beautiful. Her book is Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry, and Hope. It's available now. As always, you can find the full feed of my work at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving The Meaning Lab podcast a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Sarah Bakewell. One of the big questions I'm interested in that I'd like to hear your take on is what is humanism's theory of meaning? It is very much to do with our social nature, our moral and uh, personal and cultural and social connections to other people and to other living things as well. So um, that is a source of 
it's sort of answer, you know, that, that would be the answer to two different questions. One is how do we find meaning in the world? And the other is how do we found, find a foundation for moral life in the world? I think a humanist is inclined to answer both of those questions by pointing to our sort of bundle of connections with each other. There's an idea which um, comes from, uh, it's found in various forms in Southern Africa, but uh, in uh, Nguni Bantu, it's Ubuntu. And um, it became a sort of a word quite well known in, in outside that area because it was used by um, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu to describe one of his um, motivating ideas behind his work with the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the end of apartheid in South Africa. Ubuntu, he defined as meaning we're... Um, part of a of a bundle of life that um, I am human through you, you know we are human through each other, and um, and we're all part of this web or or bundle of life. So it, this can mean moral commitments, but it it has a political um, dimension clearly for him. Speaking about how there's a breakdown in that interconnectedness of of lives when something like apartheid shows up because that is a failure politically of a recognition of this mutuality between people, this connectedness between people. So the task is to rebuild that. How do you rebuild it was, you know, what interested him. That to me is a crucial idea. I mean, it's found in all sorts of cultures. You find it in uh, Confucian thought in, in the Chinese tradition. You find it throughout the European tradition that the source of meaning, the source of morality is uh, that web, that bundle of life. Another way of putting it, which would be a bit harsher, would be to say that we, as humans, we sort of create our own meaning. I mean, you know, when I look out and the sort of at the universe on a dark night with stars, which I'm happy to say where I am at the moment, we have some wonderful um, sort of night skies, which you just look at and you feel this tremendous, I feel a great sense of awe and interest and fascination and desire to to an attempt to imagine just how vast that universe is and where we might fit into it all those questions which for a person with a certain sort of religious faith would would suggest some kind of divine presence in the universe that there's something looking back at us as it were i don't feel that sense of that anybody is looking at us um from that vast, vast realm. But I do feel a, a very strong sense of connection to it and that it's an incredible thing to be to be here and to be part of this, however tiny, and uh, that we'll only have it while we're alive and that we should do a kind of homage to it as much as we can. But all of this for, uh, for reasons that are to do with, with my own sense of meaning, my own sense of, of beauty and spirituality, in fact. But for me, there's no shortage at all of, of a sense of meaning for me as a humanist. It's, the world is absolutely rich in meanings, both in my connections with other people and um, in my connections with the rest of life on this planet and in my connections with the entire universe. I mean, it's, you know, what more could you want than that? Another thing that I want to touch on up front here is that in the introduction to your book and then throughout all of the different thinkers that we meet, 
you come back to a lot of these great refrains of humanism. So one of them you mentioned in Ubuntu, I am human through other humans. Um, but another one that I really like, and I think resonates with a lot of people comes from Terence. So that is, I am human, uh, nothing human is foreign to me. Or at least that's how I first heard it. Your translation is a little bit different. You know, this is something that I've been thinking about because to me, this is one of those aphorisms that seems so patently worth accepting that it almost seems like a self-evident aspect of the good life. But there's a part of me that's starting to question it in a way that I didn't previously. And that's coming from that basically the more I live and interact with different kinds of people, the more I start to feel like the best I can do is appreciate them and the way they live in an abstract sense. Their version of, of humanity, what it's like to be them, when you really get down to it, maybe actually is more foreign to me than I give it credit. How do you, how do you, does that make sense to you? To you? And, and how, do, how does that sort of square with, with the humanist thinking you survey in your book? I guess my guide in interpreting that has been, has been Montaigne actually, because he, in his, that was a favorite quote of his, he had it painted in pride of position on the wall of his study where he put a lot of his favorite quotes. Um, he wrote in the essays, he, he wrote, you know, each person bears the for entire form of the human condition. Therefore, you can write about anyone and it'll be a glimpse into the human condition. But on the other hand, he also wrote, um, it's the closing sentence, actually, of the first version of his essays. He says um, that my ruling principle is, is diversity. He's endlessly fascinated by the diversity of human customs, human lives, human practices, human ideas, human individuals. Um, my, you know, he said, my, my, this is my ruling principle. There's a, there's a bit in the book where I sort of reflect on, on those principles of, of seeing a, a, a kind of universality among humans, seeing a universal thing that we can all connect to, and um, the principle of, of diversity, of acknowledging and respecting diversity. And it seems to me that, you know, they might be seen sometimes as opposites, but the, the key is that when you get a say, a repressive regime which gives no respect to one of those principles, it tends to also give no respect to the other one. It's like if you get a, a regime that has no respect for the diversity of people's um, views or practices or ideas or ways of thinking, very often they also are, are not accepting the principle that all people you know, share some essential human quality that brings them together. Um, to me, they work very well together. And it's, you know, it's a clue, I think, that that an attack on one tends to end up being an attack on the other. Yeah, let me try and pick up on something that you said in there and, and try and rephrase it in my own words, which is that there's a distinction here between the aspirational version of that phrase, nothing human is foreign to me, versus the descriptive version of it. So the descriptive version saying, that, oh, well, genuinely, I personally right now understand all human things. That's pretty tenuous, um, probably just flat out wrong. Very few people would endorse that in that sort of blatant way. And the humanist version of it is not that, yes, every human situation is something that I'm very happy to be in and find myself completely comfortable with, but more driven from a place of 
curiosity, uh, love, aspiration to connect with humanity in its various forms, some of which may be more familiar and comfortable to you, some of which may be initially more foreign, but something that you still seek to appreciate. Does that seem like a distillation of some of the the important stuff that you, that you put down in your explanation? Definitely. I, I think that's a very good point. I think we're talking about, um, about uh, the sense of there being a, a seed of, in any human relationship, in any relationship with another human being, there is the potential for um, having a, a, a sharing of something essential in them that, you know, obviously lots of things can stand in the way. Lots of th- I agree with you that your first formulation of it as, as a description of how every human encounter is, is, is clearly nonsense, because that would also imply that we share, that we instantly see and understand every scrap of detail about a person's experience in life, uh, which is not true. I mean, it's, it's not true even after you know people for years. Let's talk about some specific figures. Uh, in your book, which is sort of a, a novel of of a hundred characters, a few of them have appeared in the cast characters of your previous books. But I'm curious for this one, which thinker were you most surprised to learn about or find yourself connecting with their work on a deeper level than perhaps you had before or had expected to? Yeah, um, great question. Because there was there were several. I was really fascinated by some of the characters that I didn't know a great deal about, except as sort of names and a vague idea of what they did from the the first part of the book concerns the um, humanists in the sense of scholars and literary people of the uh, practitioners of the humanities, as we'd now say, um, of Italy and other parts of Europe in the um, from the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries. Um, there were several, I mean, one of those that absolutely fascinated me was Lorenzo Valla, who um, was primarily a, he was a translator. He had very good Latin, as most people in the educated sort of part of society did, and uh, also very good Greek. And um, he taught the sort of principles of eloquence and of he really wrote about a whole range of literary subjects, but he did these investigations into uh, texts. And the one that uh, was most surprising and fascinating to me was he um, investigated the veracity of a document called The Donation of Constantine, which supposedly had been written in the fourth century to record the Emperor Constantine giving dominion over the whole of Western Europe, basically, to the church. Um, to the papacy. And um, he showed from analysis of the usage of Latin in it, that it couldn't possibly have been written in the fourth century. It must have been written much later, about 400 years later in the eighth century. So he did that using these these intellectual tools of really looking at closely at words and thinking about them historically. So Latin, some people thought that Latin uh, sort of was this eternal thing that never changed. That's why it was so marvelous and so wonderful. And, you know, but he pointed out that it had changed and that there were certain words that just couldn't have been used before a certain date. But he also argued as a historian now would looking at, you know, is there any documentation, any witness reports recording this event? 
Um, is it even plausible historically that such an event would have taken place? So it was a challenge to church authority. It was a challenge to their you know, reasons uh, for, for claiming such dominion, even in his own 15th century. He was a, a very, um, he wasn't afraid of anything. You know, you get the impression of, he wasn't afraid to antagonize the church. He wasn't afraid to antagonize fellow scholars. He was always taking issue with them. He's a sort of good counterexample to the idea that humanists are always nice and cuddly because I he was, I don't think he was, but uh, really sort of kind of a, a model for using those intellectual tools to, to question authority and to, to point out the inconsistencies. Jumping way ahead in time, there were, you know, other figures in the later parts of the book who, again, I didn't know very much about, but who were quite a quite a surprise to me. Um, one of those in the 19th century was Matthew Arnold, who was a poet, but he also wrote a book called Culture and Anarchy, which I think I've had on my shelf since I was about 20 or something and had never really looked at, because I always assumed it would be very, very Victorian and stodgy and very conservative and stuffy. I mean, it is very Victorian, actually, in many ways, but it's also a great read. And his argument I mean, he argues for the improving value of culture, how culture improves lives and how we should all have access to, he defines culture as the best that has been thought and said, and that it'll bring what he calls sweetness and light into our lives. I mean, it all sounds pretty unfashionable by today's ideas. But in fact, what he's saying is it's important that the best culture, the the fullest, the richest cultural experiences should be available to everyone um he was he worked as an inspector of schools so he was specifically thinking about education including education of working class children you know disadvantaged children and saying they shouldn't just be sort of given something second rate that you know will sort of tide them over they should have access to the best um and fullest culture and you know there's nothing elitist about this that we all should have the full benefit of access to everything that has been thought and said by the greatest minds, the greatest artists and so on. So, I mean, yeah, that was another real surprise discovery. Also, I mean, parts of it are quite sprightly and quite funny, which I certainly wasn't expecting. I want to touch on a, a theme. There's something I wanted to talk to you about that I think came up in both those examples in a, in, in a certain way. And that, and that has to do with dead people. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that both you and I have a particular affinity for them. <laughs> so for instance, you know, taking you, your books are populated almost exclusively with people who are, are long dead. Um, and that's something you even mentioned uh, before we, we began the, the, the interview here. I'm interested in how that plays out in what humanism is. So on the one hand, you know, the, if you sort of gather up every, the contributions of, of, of the majority of the people that you talk about in your book, they're men and women of letters. And they're sort of, yes, they're engaged in the immediate world. Most of them have some sort of thing that they are doing in the here and now. But there's this big theme um, that they are invested in this massive conversation across the ages and looking at the best of culture or texts from a previous era, the, uh, the, the, the thoughts of the, the ancients or someone who came 200 years 
before them. And part of me looks at that and thinks, well, that's where so much of, of humanism's meaning comes from. And I think people like you and me find this so compelling, like the idea of being able to commune with, for you, perhaps people like Montaigne and all of the you know great thinkers and scholars that you, you survey in your book. What a special thing to be able to sort of connect to that great conversation throughout the, the ages. And then there's another part of me that looks at that and thinks, well, maybe if you were really serious about a humanism, wouldn't the focus, instead of long dead individuals who will never answer your letters, no matter how kindly you write them and, and how much eloquence you put into them, focus on the, the here and now of concrete needs of actual living human beings. I don't know exactly how to express this perhaps, but there is a certain devotion to the abstract notion of, of, of human beings. So I don't know if that entirely makes sense, but I'm wondering does that does that sort of tension there strike you as 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 a real thing or come out to you as well and and, and what do you make of that okay so i think you're sort of presenting a strange dichotomy as if there's you know those two things are somehow you've got to choose between one or the other and i think with all of almost all of the humanists in the book apart from one or two um who were kind of regarded as slightly ridiculous figures even among their contemporaries all of these humanists were seeing this um reaching back into the past to to read to understand to have this um meeting with other minds in the past to to you know i mean that's what literature is you know it is something that's been written even if it was written yesterday it still was written before the present um reaching back to make contact with these other minds but specifically i mean they say it again and again beginning with petrarch specifically in the hope of um reinventing, reworking, being enriched by it, being morally um, reborn, as he sees it, by, by this wealth of wisdom from the past for the future. So, you know, making this um, sort of creative process of, uh, of, of using all this material, all this cultural richness, all the things that these, uh, these long dead people had to say from their experience of life and and using it to build something for the future. And the, the few who didn't were just sort of, there were those who said, oh, well, um, really, we should all just write like Cicero because he was the best writer that ever wrote in Latin and we should never do anything new. And we should never, never, you know, try and do anything different from that. They were very much in a minority. And I think really everybody else that that we talk about in the book um, is emphatic about the application of this great cultural communication with the past for um, building a wiser future or building a you know new human ways of of thinking about culture and doing culture and building relationships with each other and doing the right thing, building better societies, all the rest of it. They're all really quite focused on the future. I mean, if you look at somebody like Again, I'm jumping forward in time here. Bertrand Russell, who um, was, you know, incredibly erudite about the philosophers of the past, but always spoke about the need for hope, the fact that to philosophize or to take part in political life or to be a human being at all um, should be more about hope for the future than fear, for example, or, or, you know, than sort of being stuck. To me, there's a very direct 
line actually between this uh, this interest in all the people who have left records of the, their lives and reflections from the past, and you know a desire to to have an impact on the future to to use that to build a better future. And humanists, um, again, it depends which type you're talking about. I mean, there's this very strong tradition in humanism of living for the here and now. There's a quote by Robert Ingersoll that I use several times in the book. He was a 19th century free thinker, um, a sort of non-religious, um, very much an orator, traveling preacher, actually, <laughs> of the of the sort of humanist and free thinking cause all around America. And he came up with what he himself called a creed. And he said, I know it's a bit ridiculous to talk about a creed and not being a believer, but he said, um, my, my creed is simple. It's happiness is the only good. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is to make others so. So to, again, it's that, hum it's that connection with those around us. Can I ask you one uh, final question here, and then I'll, I'll I'll let you go? What what are three books that have most influenced the the way you think? One of the books that was very um, influential on on me as a life writer, as a biographer, was uh, the Quest for Corvo, A. J. A. Simons. I got it out here, my copy of it. Um, he, Baron Corvo, as he styled himself. Um, or Frederick Rolfe was a was a very eccentric writer, novelist, very eccentric person. What's interesting in the way that A.J.A. Simons tells his life story is that um, he makes the process of discovering uh, what happened by contacting people who knew him and things like that very much the the highlight of the story. So he includes all the letters that he wrote to people and what people said. And of course, what one person so one person will tell him something about Corvo. Um, and then a few pages later, it'll come out that, that that was a complete fabrication, not by the person telling it, by Corvo himself, who was a sort of self-mythologizer. So you gradually, it's fascinating for the reader because you're finding your way through this complexity of um, false starts and different views of things, diversity, exactly what we were talking about, diversity of stories and perspectives. It's a completely engaging read. And uh Definitely, you know, I, I think that that's how I try in a less dramatic way. But that's what I try and do in writing is to sort of capture what different people thought about things without trying to make it into a unified whole. I uh, was very um, influenced by a, a novel that I've read many, many times. Um, and I still reread it and I still discover new things in it is uh, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Um that is a fairly massive novel <laughs> written over a period of many years, describes a young man. A lot of people are familiar with it. Describes a young man, you know, going up to a tuberculosis sanatorium in Davos in Switzerland. Um, the mountain air was supposed to be helpful. He goes to visit his cousin who's got TB for three weeks. But he ends up staying for seven years um, and developing TB himself. And he... Um, it, it, a lot of it is just sort of composed of all the dialogues with the people that he meets up there, of whom some are trying to convince him of various worldviews, and they're all in, uh, excuse me, contradiction with one another. It's also kind of a, a love story, and it's um, it's full of sort of irony. You know, there's this young person who's 
who's trying to understand the world around him. But a lot of the fascination of the novel is just in the 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 density of the of the actual material. You know, there's so many there's things in there that are about science, about atoms, about um, all kinds of difficult different political ideas. There's a lot of humanist versus anti-humanist stuff in there because one of the characters is is uh, a kind of caricature of a flitty, flighty, high-minded humanist. And then there's a much more um, sort of ominous figure who doesn't agree with any of that. And to finish with, I'm a great admirer of uh, Janet Malcolm, um, recently died, uh, wrote for The New Yorker, wrote books. Um, In the Freud Archives was uh, the first book of hers that I read. And uh, it stands for all of her books, really. I think for her, for me, her style is a kind of model of of clarity and um, questioning, constantly questioning both herself and everybody around her, which I try and emulate, but without anything like her, her concision and lucidity. So, yeah, a great influence on me. Thank you for taking the time to talk today. This, this has been a lot of fun. Great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sarah Bakewell. You can find the full feed of my work at themeaninglab.com. Your support allows me to continue to make this show. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of the Meaning Lab podcast. Mm-hmm.